If we wanted to, we could talk about Microsoft buying GitHub, but I feel like that's going to be so old news by the time this comes out that who cares? Yeah, and I've, I don't have I don't have interesting opinions on it. I'm just like sounds I don't like have a, a hot good take move. either. I, I like the guy they picked for CEO. Okay, there we go. We're done with that one. Yeah. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. You ever look at a test that says that something should serialize correctly, except it's an unsigned number and it's comparing it to negative one and think, that doesn't seem like a good test. You want my honest answer? No, I've never thought that. <laughs> Me neither, actually, because I'm the one who wrote the test. Okay. And I think I chalked it up to like, there was no way to have an unsigned literal in my sequel because it just assumes everything is signed by default. I think, I don't remember what I was thinking. I can't believe I merged this feature with, with this test comparing unsigned max to negative one and asserting that they are equal and thinking, yeah, this is totally a feature that works. I'm very confused by this as well. So you, in your test, you say, expect this unsigned number yes. to equal negative one? Well, so we create a SQL query, right? Yeah. Select negative one equals question mark. And then for the question mark, we send this unsigned number. Okay. Which, if you know, gets sent as signed, would be sent as as negative one because negative one and the max unsigned value have the same representation. Okay. So it turns out what was happening was we were not set properly setting the is unsigned flag in MySQL client. Mm -hmm. So it was rejiggering our values to be sent as signed representations one size up. Signed representations one size up. Actually, I don't even think it was one size up, but it was telling the, it was basically it was telling the server, hey, treat this as a signed number, not an unsigned number. Okay. And it's sending the same bits either way. And it turned out when I started looking at this that there was no good way to fix it in diesel 1.x. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the problem was there was no good way for us to communicate from the place where we're serializing the value, which is the last place that we actually know the concrete type, there was not a good way for us to, to communicate to the part of the code that interacts with MySQL client, hey, this is also this is unsigned. Because mm -hmm. what happens when we serialize it is we store two things. We store the type metadata for that type, whatever it is. In the case of MySQL, it's just this enum of all of the C representations, basically, that it has. There's a field you set called buffer type, which is a C enum, and it's, you know, MySQL type, tiny MySQL type, int 24. Apparently, MySQL has a 24-bit integer. Why not? Except it doesn't represent that on the server, as far as I can tell. Oh, I think medium int is 24-bit, but it's pointless to have in the client because there's no 24-bit integer type mm -hmm. in any language that I'm aware of. But, you know, anyway, so it's, a, it's an enum of all of those things. And so specifically, like, I can't add to this because doing so would be a, a major breaking change. You can't add an item to the enum. I can't add, a, yeah, I cannot add a new item. Because then the any pattern matching based on that enum would be incomplete. Is that why? Right. Okay. Yep. So what I usually do with almost every enum, um, except for the ones where I'm explicitly like, this is here for you to exhaustively pattern match against it. But typically for almost any enum ever, I will add a hidden item at the very end called double underscore non-exhaustive. Because mm -hmm. uh, there's no way in the, there's, there's an RFC that I think was accepted to add just a way to put an attribute on the enum and basically say, don't allow exhaustive matching against this enum. But since that's not stable yet, technically you could match against double underscore non-exhaustive if you really wanted to, but you know what you're doing <laughs> if you've done that. Uh -huh. Anyway, so and that forces people to have uh, an underscore case, basically a, a else, yeah, yeah, an yeah. else. 
So uh, that would be the way that I would want to fix this and is what I'm going to do in Diesel 2.0 is add unsigned variants to this other enum. Will you also mark that as non-exhaustive at this point in case for future use? So my gut tells me I should because what else did I forget? Mm -hmm. But as I've been looking through more closely at all of the fields on these data structures for my SQL client, like I just don't know what else unless my SQL adds a new type. I don't know what else I would I would ever put on there. And like, and when I say add a new type, I mean actually add a fundamental new type, not like JSON or anything that's sent as text, mm-hmm. which I, I just don't know that that's gonna happen. Yep. But maybe I should just mark it unexhaustively safe. A lot of this is also sort of hypothetical because there's really no reason to have exhaustively matched against. Yeah, this I was e- gonna say, what is my what is the use case for somebody using Diesel to be like, I need to cover e- every one of these types? If there was an alternate MySQL connection implementation. Mm-hmm. Because you could totally do that and use the same backend. And you, I feel like I would know if that existed, though. Mm-hmm. Either way, in the spirit of Sember, this is a thing that was specifically written to allow exa- exhaustive pattern matching. So that was out. So then option two, which is also technically a breaking change, but it's the same thing. The only code it would break is somebody writing an alternate MySQL connection implementation. So option number two was we we changed the... Um, bind collector type, basically the thing that gets part of our AST pass that serializes all of the bind parameters and grabs all the type metadata and basically replace it with a, we used the generic one previously and and instead of using the generic one, change that to a specific MySQL one that also grabs the is unsigned flag. And then this also required adding a bunch of methods to our type metadata trait that are all MySQL specific which I just went and marked them all not uh, doc hidden. But basically, we also had to add a method that's like, hey, type, are you unsigned or not? Mm-hmm. And then a uh, second method that is, hey, type, if you're a tuple, here's a vec of Booleans. Ask every single one of your types to fill this vec with whether or not it's unsigned. <laughs> oh, and then there's a third one that's just give me the type and whether or not you are unsigned. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and it was super ugly, but you know, I can just mark all of these doc hidden and get rid of them in Diesel 2.0. But it does require changing the associated type for the MySQL backend to say, hey, the bind collector is now a MySQL specific one, not the generic one, which again, there's there, the only reason that you would ever need to care about the concrete type there is if you need to construct a new instance of it. And the only reason you would be doing that is if you're I- implementing the connection yourself. Mm-hmm. And so then there's option three, where we, instead of changing the bind collector, we instead, while serializing unsigned values, we write an extra byte at the end and then in the code that talks to my SQL cl- uh, client, we check to see if we're expecting a fixed size buffer. If the buffer that we have is, uh, has a length of exactly equal to the size we expect plus one, drop the last byte and set un- is unsigned to true. <laughs> and this is the only one that is not technically a breaking change. Although ironically, I think it is the most likely to break code. Mm-hmm. But it would not cause any code to stop compiling. But if you were relying on the behavior of the serialization of unsigned integers for MySQL, then this would break. So you're just going to release Diesel 2.0? No. So we actually <laughs> talked about doing that. That was that's option four. Was was mm-hmm. we released 2.0? And and we've actually actually started a discussion around 2.0 now because there was about a, a day long period where I was cu- like for sure, nope, we have to release 2.0. And so that got me thinking. Well, there's a lot of there is enough like stuff that's not like major breaking changes that's it's not gonna break all kinds of code in fact part of this got me to write down exactly what the rules are for what can or can't happen in 2.0 uh and one of those is 
basically it has to be changes that are no more difficult for code than a deprecation warning would be. And it's only changes that for whatever reason could not go through a deprecation cycle. Or there are cases where like we could go through a deprecation cycle, but going through a deprecation cycle, like I want to change something kind of fundamental to how Postgres deserializes. Right now, you, we just give you the raw bytes, and I want to give you instead a struct that you don't know anything about, but you can easily get the bytes from if you want. Uh, so that way I can add more stuff there in the future, like the OID. Mm -hmm. So that's a change. For example, I could totally go through a deprecation cycle, but what that would look like is I deprecate the PG backend and create a PG2 uh, backend, which even though a very small amount of code would be affected by that change, I've now forced everybody using Postgres to be affected by it. Mm -hmm. So those are the sort of things where where that we're looking to do that we'd be looking to do in 2.0. But no, so um, ultimately I laid out my reasoning to the core, rest of the core team and was like, here, so here are the four options that I see. Well, and and then the last option being just leave this bug or you know remove deprecate support for unsigned types entirely. Mm -hmm. So you know, ask the core teams. Can we all agree that number one, these are in fact the only options. There's not some other option that I'm I'm missing. This isn't like a false dichotomy or anything like that. These are in fact the options. And then number two, of all of these options, like we don't have to like this change, but that this is the best of those options. And so we ended up going with changing the associate type for the bind collector. Okay. Again, it was it was about exactly as likely to break any code as the enum case change would have. And in fact, the code with the enum change would have been cleaner, which is why that's what I want to do in Diesel 2.0. But it was more of like that enum was meant to be exhaustively matched. And this associate type, we sort of tell people not to rely on the concrete values of the of associate types for these sort of traits. So it's it's even though they're both technically, strictly speaking, equally breaking changes and the code that they would they, they'll break the same amount of code either way in this in more of the spirit of Semver, I felt like this was, you know, not breaking a thing that was written in a way. If you change this, it, it's a breaking change. Right. I agree, I guess. What do you think the likelihood that people use unsigned integers? I mean, I only found out about this because of a bug report. Many, many months into having this support in Diesel, right? Right. Well, and so <laughs> it's specifically something that you only run into. Well, I'm actually wondering how much code was silently broken, because there are two ways that this can break. Again, it only breaks if you know, you've know you got values outside of, of the zero to sign max. Mm -hmm. And if you're just doing like where unsigned number equals this value, you know, this value, mm -hmm. like that's just going to silently start, that's going to return false. Right, where there might have been matches. Yeah. Right. The place where it blows up in your face is if you try to insert, because that's like the only time MySQL is ever strict. I mean, even Postgres wouldn't be that strict. It would automatically coerce, I think it automatically coerces integer sizes. I actually don't know for sure. But MySQL is sometimes actually strict about inserts. And this is one of those cases where if you try to insert a negative value into an unsigned column, it will error. Mm -hmm. Or I think if you have strict mode turned off, it will uh, warn and insert zero. Okay. So you found a way to do it in a you know, non-breaking-ish way. So that's fine. It was just an adventure. Yeah. And funny that it took so long to find out. But yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, these are the same changes that I knew we could make. Well, I guess the, the bind parameter change did take me, or the bind collector change did take me a little while to think of. But yeah, the enum change, you know, came up kind of immediately. And that's why as soon as I saw this, I looked at the test. I was like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. I know how we fix this. I know how we communicate whether it's unsigned or not upstream, but it yeah. can change. Well, good on you for fixing it and good on for the person reporting it. Nice work. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully nobody's code actually breaks. Yeah, well, and hopefully nobody's code was silently broken. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm sure people's code was silently doing the wrong thing. All right, well. Compilers don't prevent behavior errors. Yeah.
Should we talk about Visual Studio Code? Sure. So last Friday, I was talking to Chris, who's been doing some TypeScript stuff, and he was talking about how cool Visual Studio Code was. And it had been on my radar for a while as like a thing I had installed and I'd played with a little bit and was kind of impressed with. Really just like dating back to when I did C-sharp development and I did all my development inside Visual Studio, like proper, you know, the thing that was like several hundreds of dollars. And, and the killer feature of Visual Studio has always been IntelliSense. So basically it's version of tab completion, except it's not tab completion. It just pops up options as you're like, hey, I have a uh, this type of object. And you type a dot and it's like, here are all the members and or here are all the properties and methods and things like that on this object that return the type that you need if, if it knows that right and then you can like as you're like going down through the list it's like and oh additionally here's the documentation for this yes. and then you hit a bracket to like start passing it parameters and it's like this is what this parameter should be this is what this other parameter should be also this thing may throw these exceptions or like whatever right yep. and so it was just really a great way of getting inline documentation while you were doing like I discovered when I was doing C sharp development, I discovered more elegant solutions to what I was doing just based on hitting a dot and being like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see that. You know, yeah. then had I just like gone with what I knew and then had to kind of go back and, you know, if I wanted to do something different, go find the documentation elsewhere. So I always thought the IntelliSense stuff was pretty nice. And from what I've seen, like Paul Smith here uses Visual Studio Code as his editor all the time. And when I see him working in it, it just seems like I'm like, wow, they're doing a lot of really cool stuff. Well, nowadays, you've heard of Language Server Protocol, right? That's what I was going to talk about. I didn't okay, know anything cool. about that. So like, I was like, oh, that's what's powering all this. And so like, I've been doing Elm in Vim for a little while now, for mm -hmm. probably six months or so now, and have never gotten really anything nice to work in Vim with Elm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's not entirely true. So I have it format the code automatically for me when I save. So it runs Elm format. I have, I'm trying to think of what else I have. Oh, I have Ale, which is automated linting engine or something like that, whatever, some Vim plugin, and it knows how to lint Elm files. So it shows me where the errors are, right? Mm -hmm. And so those things are nice, but I don't have any sort of good tab completion. I don't have any good C tag support. So C tags are like a total hack, basically, in all languages, I feel like. Yes. So it's basically just looking for symbols in the code files and being like, here's where they're located. Okay. And you hit the right key. And then when you're using them, you're like, hit, you hit this lookup key and here's the first location where I see this thing. It has no like intelligence to it. It has no IntelliSense to it. <laughs> so anyway, language server protocol, is that what it's called? Language service protocol? Something language like server protocol. LSP, LSP, common language server protocol, is a thing that Microsoft kind of made as like an open specification to say like, here's how our editor is going to talk to different language server protocols. And you can use language server protocols. Like, I guess the impetus for doing this, I, maybe this is how actual Visual Studio is done under the hood, but in Visual Studio code, the impetus for doing this was actually TypeScript. They wanted an editor that could do TypeScript really well. Well, it's not just our editor, right? It's any editor. Right. But their reason for doing it was we want our editor to be able to do this very well. And if we can do it in an open way that other editors like there are plugins to do this stuff in Vim as well. Right. Vim LSP. Right. I have not dipped my toe into that. Maybe if you have, we can talk about that. But it's super impressive what it's able to do. And I also feel like part of what it's able to do is so effective because it operates in a GUI versus operating in the command line, basically because there are layers to what it can show you and there aren't really those layers in Vim. Like Vim has, when it does tab completion, that little thing opens up, but like there's no good way for Vim to show you the documentation in line as you're hovering over the thing, right? Like it could, it could open the quick fix window or something with the documentation and then it close it when you go to the next thing. But like 
that's not an elegant kind of thing as a Vim user, whereas it can be much more elegant looking in a GUI tool. So sure. I spent most of my day on Friday where I wasn't doing meetings and things like that, kind of getting a Visual Studio Code instance set up. Mm-hmm. I started out by being like, okay, I have to use this exactly like I use Vim. So I want Vim key bindings. So no problem. There's like a Vim key bindings plugin. It even has like some additional stuff built in. Like it has support for Vim surround built in, even though Vim surround is a plugin. Okay. Which it really should just be part of Vim. So whatever. So it has some support for stuff like that. So it it was doing most of what I wanted to do. But then like the other thing I do on top of Vim is I basically when I think of running Vim, I think of running Tmux with Vim inside it. I have like a blog post on how I navigate through them, but basically I set that up like my IDE and I can very quickly open a terminal split and I can navigate between Vim splits and terminal splits with the same keys. Like they're agnostic as to whether I'm moving, what what I'm moving between. And so I wanted that replicated in Visual Studio Code, but pretty quickly was like, that's not how Visual Studio Code works. And if I'm going to really try this, I should try and use Visual Studio Code like it's its own application, right? So learn the shortcuts with very little exception. I tried to like learn the shortcuts I needed without overriding what the shortcuts were. I, you know, I obviously went through my settings and, and did things that I prefer, like things like cleaning up new lines and stuff like that. But I tried to keep it, unless I had a particular reason to add an override to the setting, tried to keep it as vanilla as possible. Felt pretty good about that. And then it came time to like, okay, well, I'm going home now and I want to have this also on my home Mac. So I have an iMac at home that I use sometimes. And I was like, okay, so I got to check these dot files in. Where are these dot files stored? And it's like, oh, they don't, they're not dot files. <laughs> These are like stored in the application bundle, right? Or in the library. In it's not in the application bundle. It's in like on OS ten. It's in like tilde library slash right. Visual Studio. Blah 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 blah. So that wasn't too big of a deal because I can just like I use RCM for my dot files, which is this thing that manages sim links and things like that. And I could just move those into my dot files, and it would sim link them to the right location. Right. So that was okay. And then I was like, all right. Well, what about the extensions? Like, I want the same extensions everywhere because some of my settings reference those extensions. I don't know what happens, actually, if I try and open up Visual Studio Code and I don't have that. I, may, I, I guess that setting's probably just a nert. I'm guessing it doesn't error, but maybe it does. And so I've probably used, like, five different ways to sync plugins with Vim between, like, Pathogen and Vimplug and Vundle and who knows what else. I think I'm using Vimplug right now. But... Visual Studio Code doesn't seem to have anything like that. It's just like you can get a list of plugins from the command line if you want. And that's what I'm doing. So I, when I know that I've installed a new plugin and I want to persist the fact that I've installed that plugin, I run a, I wrote a quick shell command called like save VS code extensions or plugins or whatever they're called. And it writes out a text file. And then I have installed the VS code plugins and it just like runs Xargs over each line of that file and runs a command line command to install it into Visual Studio Code. So that kind of works. I was later pointed to this plugin that exists to persist it. Like you, you sign up for a, a GitHub API token and it persists all your settings to gist for some weird reason. And I was like, yep. this is too separate from what I like. Yes, yeah, so I want to use the app like it's supposed to be used, but I want to manage my configuration of things that I need on my various machines in one location. So I wasn't willing to do that, but I guess that exists. So I felt pretty good about it. I was even it was even one of those things that like as I'm sitting there on Friday night and my wife and I are watching a movie, I was like, I'm just gonna play with Visual Studio Code. So I started playing around with it a lot and I liked it. And I was like, I think I'm gonna do this. And then Monday rolled around and I was like, okay, here we go. Day one, Visual Studio Code for real work. And it lasted about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I'm going back to Vim. I can't. Part of it was just like what I do in Vim is just too ingrained in me. And so I kept trying to do the same thing in, in code. And the other part was just that code had some oddities to how it handles split editors that 
just doesn't jive with the way I think of how it should handle them. So like right. if you split the editor in code, you actually get two tab sets. So you like if you split it down the middle, you have an editor on the right and editor on the left. Each one of those has tab sets. What I actually want to happen is like for the tabs to be made up of editors rather than the editors having a tab. So like I would like to have one tab have split editors and then switch right. to the other uh, yeah, tab. Yeah, like tabs in Windows work in Vim. Right. That's what I want. And that it doesn't work that way. And the fact that it doesn't work that way just like drove me nuts. And it, maybe it won't. Like I'm not saying I'm, I'm totally off of it yet. I still think it's cool. And I still think that uh, it's worth investigating these things every once in a while to be like, how? what is this? This is the first editor that I've been like, hmm, okay. Interesting. Since I switched to Vim from, you know, whatever I was using at the time. So anyway, yeah. Have you used it much? A little bit. I mean, I haven't used it extensively. Um, I use it whenever I need to do stuff on my Windows machine. Because mm-hmm. just Vim on Windows is bad. Huh. What about Notepad? You don't you don't use Notepad. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It seems like a, a lovely editor. So I di- first of all, I disagree with you on the like you can't show documentation on an item in Vim. Okay. In a way that that works because I think there's two different cases. There's like you want to see the signature or the first line of the documentation, which there's a very you know there's a very easy place for that to get shown. And I think either opening a new pane or the quick fix window or what have you actually does make sense if you're like, okay, no, let me see the full documentation because generally you want to actually navigate that. Yeah, maybe, I guess. But what I really like is that I don't have to say I want to see the full documentation. It's just there, right? It's just like, here it is. And like, that would be much more annoying to me in Vim with that window, that quick fix window, like resizing to show docs or whatever the case may be. I don't know. I guess I haven't seen, I guess I would like to play with it a little bit to see. Do you ever um, accidentally press, I think it's like control K or capital K or whatever it is that like opens the man page for whatever is underneath your, your cursor? I think I overwrite what that does. Okay. Well, there's a default binding that I don't remember what it is. I accidentally press it all the time. Maybe it's like control Y or, or, or something. Uh, shift K is definitely doing something weird. <laughs> yeah, it's looking up a man. I think it's trying to look up a man page or something. Yeah, so like if you put in like Emma Luke and then hover over that and press capital K, that'll give you the man page. So like Vim actually already has this built in if you're using C. Right. Or only things that, that have man pages written. And that's, you know, an interface. I don't know. I, I do think, though, like I'm going to want to use my same keyboard shortcuts to, na- to navigate the documentation if I want to go to the documentation. But back to code, though, I think code does a very good job at what it's trying to do. And I don't judge anybody who chooses to use that over Vim. I personally have far, far, far too much muscle memory. Yeah, that's what I was finding. Not just like, you know, with Vim itself, but also my configuration for Vim. Mm-hmm. And like every time I try some other editor with Vim emulation, it's always like not quite doing it right because it's not actually representing things the, the way that Vim does. It's just trying to make certain key combinations do a thing. But you know, you couldn't go in and add like a new verb in your configuration for Vim emulation, at least not for any that I've seen. And there's always some plugin that I use that is missing in whatever Vim emulation. So this seems like a cool editor. It has a lot of neat features that I'd like to use, but like muscle memory. I feel like there's, maybe it's not the default one, but I feel like there's some implementation of Vim bindings and VS code that actually runs Vim under the hood, like as part of the language server or something like that. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know if that's actually... I might be making this up. That's That could entirely be a thing I'm making up. So let's say it exists. Sure. I mean, in theory, that's what NeoVim was supposed to be, right? It has a list of emulated plugins. So the emulated plugins are EasyMotion, which I don't know anything about. 
surround, which I'm glad is in there. Commentary, which I like, like just yep. quick blocking out stuff. Vim indent, indent object, which I don't know about, and Vim sneak, which I don't know about, but it emulates those plugins by default. So that's pretty nice, I guess. What is Vim sneak? What does that do? Anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I found the Vim bindings okay. Like, and obviously I hadn't yet gotten into like configuring my leader commands inside VS Code right. that I'd like them to do. Another thing I really liked about code was um, command P is like the fuzzy finder. Yep. But then you get command shift P, which is like the fuzzy finder for all of the commands that you could possibly do. So like, it's just a list of things that you can do right now. And you can be like, yeah. oh, I want to split the terminal. Right, so you can type split terminal, and it'll be like, oh, okay, here's it shows you like here's the keyboard shortcut for the next time you want to do this, or you can just hit enter and do that thing right now, which yes. I think is really cool. There's lots of times where that that's something I would love to have in Vim. Like right now, I just go help a thing, and I try and I like throw a term in there. I'm like, is that a thing? Right. It's like there. Oh, okay, there it is. Uh, and then you start reading about, it and you're like, well, how do I use it? What do I do? Like, and now it's like, eh, if you want to do, if there's a thing that you know the editor can do but you don't do it enough to know the keyboard shortcut or what menu it's under or whatever. You just hit that command shift P and start typing it. And it, you, right. know, you get your um, type ahead stuff in there and it tells you like, uh, that's what you can do. Substitute. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do. Join lines. Like, I don't know. Sure. It's, it is a shame that Vim doesn't have like anywhere where its entire help file is concatenated into a single text file. Mm -hmm. Actually, what happens if you do control P in the help directory? It takes a very long time to index. I think this just indexed my home directory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just showing me a bunch of, of files from Heroku. What are you using control P to what are you using to index with control P and Vim? Um ag. You're not or using R you're not using RIP I have it aliased. Yeah, I'm using RG. No, but I'm just thinking like, you know, you could sort of cheat and just do it if you know what plugin it's in, help that plugin and then control P will fuzzy. Uh, I guess control P wouldn't fuzzy find it, though, because then I just search yeah, slash. Need a list of files. Right. But that's not fuzzy finding. True. Yeah, yeah, that would that is. I mean, that is a really neat feature. That would be cool for Vim to have. Yep. And like the little Git UI that you get natively inside of it. That's kind of cool, I guess. Like, sure. <laughs> I do think that LSP is going to start to bring as more languages get LSP implementations, I think that's just going to bring everything more and more up to parity between editors, no matter what. It's particularly a great solution for uh, statically typed things. Yes. Like, I don't expect it to do much for Ruby. Maybe I'm being short-sighted. I'm trying to think of what I would expect out of it in Ruby. Language. I mean, I would expect it to do all the same stuff, just less good. Accurately? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, right. it can still do go jump to definition. But do you expect it to be any better than C tags? Like maybe it could get some more intelligence around uh, adder readers and adder writers and things like yeah. that. I expect it to be something that is like, because C tags is literally just this symbol goes to this file. But but I mean, if you do user equals user dot new mm -hmm. and then call like user dot ID, right? There's a ton of things that have an ID or user dot name. You probably got eight or nine name methods in your code base, but something that is mildly intelligent, like you don't need... Yes, in theory, user.new could return something other than a user object, but it's, prob <laughs> you, you, I, it's probably a fair guess that, that what you have is an instance of user. And well, an LSP could actually run user.new and be like, yeah, you're getting a user. Well, not Maybe. safely. Not safely, yeah. Because well, user.new might delete your hard drive. Sure. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> user.new might delete your hard drive. I mean, this is the problem with Ruby, right? It's fundamental. Yeah. You have to execute a script to know anything about it. Right. But 
Yeah, and obviously it could do documentation stuff too. Like if it's like, hey, I'm, I have an indication that this is a list of things and it's an enumerable and here are the things that you can do with it. Or if you do say like, hey, I don't know, for example, you called uh, reduce on a thing and you're like, what's the order of the block arguments? And it could just tell you because it knows you're calling reduce. Yep. So they, it could do that in line. Yeah, it just has to make its reasonable guess as to where where the definition of a given method is. Like it can show you all the same stuff. So I think my next homework assignment is to f play with that stuff in Vim, particularly as it relates to Elm. I don't know if there's any good Elm support, but I've been really disappointed with what I'm getting so far out of Elm and Vim. And it's entirely true that I probably have not spent enough time trying to configure my setup for Elm and Vim, but I don't want to. Like, part of what is really nice about using VS Code is that, like, I just install the plugins and it just works. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that's, I mean, that's sort of how it works with Vim too, right? You just Google Vim Elm and install whatever the Elm plugin is. Right, except that it's not, like, as an example, right, it's not formatting code the way that I would expect it to format code, the way that code gets formatted when I hit command w and elm format runs right so i'm like why aren't you following the same indentation rules that elm format is following why doesn't that happen out of the box why do i have to tell it to do something and right then I've, I've tried to look up how to get it to do thing and how to do the right thing and it just doesn't so then i'm just like all right fine i'm gonna write it with two space indentation and when i write the file everything will change like it's fine <laughs> right so the problem the problem is less like that the experience of getting the plugin is better in vs code it's just that the, the plugin itself I guess does the right thing maybe is yeah. better yeah that's that's definitely true looking at looking just googling it it does not look like elm currently has an lsp implementation bummer the vs code plugin is just a specifically vs code plugin but there's an issue open <laughs> yeah the only, the only time i've ever well the way I've, i the only reason i knew what lsp was in the first place the only time i've ever played with it was is with rls the the rust language server mm-hmm which is still a work in progress, but is, is definitely getting there. All right. So you're, what you're telling me is just hang tight with Vim. And it'll, it'll happen. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just like, <laughs> I have no issues with what editor anybody chooses to use. And I think that you can be just as productive with VS Code as you can with Vim or Atom or Sublime Text or whatever you, or Notepad++ or whatever IntelliJ IDE mm -hmm. is the one for your language or whatever, whatever people choose to use. Like, it's all fine. Yeah. Before I switched to Vim, the last thing I used was, what was I using? I think I was mostly using RubyMine for Ruby. Mm -hmm. And then I guess occasionally I was using TextMate. I had also just switched to using the Mac. And so I was like switching between using TextMate and BBEdit and like things like that for things that weren't Ruby. But I've gone so far down the Vim road that like when I was switching to Vim, it was all I had to really do was learn Vim and then learn that I couldn't hit Command S to save a file. Other than that, it was pretty painless. And learning Vim, you just I just like learned a little bit at a time, and I still don't know a lot, but learned a little bit at a time to get what I needed done, right? But what I'm finding when I'm now that I've been using Vim for so long is <laughs> like I just keep hitting the wrong keys in various editors, and you know, having the Vim key bindings when I'm actually editing text helps, but not when I'm trying to like, okay, now I want to split the thing, and now I want to uh, bounce between these two splits, and now I want to open right. a terminal, and now I want to do, now I want to fuzzy find a file, and now I want to <laughs> you know, whatever the, whatever it is. I just remember the reason that I originally learned Vim. I had uh, gotten home from work one day and had a thought about some piece of code that I was working on and wanted to go make a quick change, but I'd forgotten to push up my branch. So the next day I got in, I set up a, just a SSH tunnel to, to that machine. So that way, if I ever did that again, when I was at home, I could just SSH in, get push, mm -hmm. and then pull it down at home. I was like, well, if I'm if I if I can SSH in, why don't I just start using an editor that I can use from the terminal? <laughs> and then I found a an SSH. So then you started client. using Pico. 
That's the first terminal editor I used. No, I, I never tried any terminal editor other than Vim. <laughs> I mean, I used Nano for Git until I learned Vim, but mm-hmm. I eventually remember uh, like I had found an SSH client for my phone. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Vim actually works surprisingly well from a phone, <laughs> which you would not expect. No. I remember when I first started working at Akamai, there was a lot more SSH involved than my previous job had had, right? And I had been used to working in with GUI editors all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was SSH'd into somewhere and I ran some command that opened whatever the editor was configured to be, which was VI out of the box. And so VI opened and I was looking at it and I was like, why can't I type? I'm typing things and I can't type. Okay, now I'm typing. All of a sudden I'm typing because I must have hit an I or an S or something like that. Right. Like now I'm typing. Okay, how do I quit? And I'm just like typing quit, control C. Control, like, not, like nothing is happening. So I remember a friend of mine, Damien, who'd got me the job. I, <laughs> I AOL instant messengered him because this is before everybody had Slack or whatever else you use at your job for this type of thing. And I was like, hey, I'm in an editor that I don't know how to exit. And I'm too embarrassed to ask the people who sit near me what to do. And he's like, I remember him being like, what's it look like? And I told him something that was happening or whatever. And he's like, you're in Vim. I'll be right there. (laughs) He he comes down with this coffee mug that had a list of Vim shortcuts on it and just puts it on my desk and walks away because he didn't want to embarrass me. (laughs) And so now I'm looking at this coffee mug like, okay. But like not knowing anything about modal editing and being like, what does this mean? How do I quit this thing? And then there was like colon Q. And I was like, all right, phew. It's like, I'll never do that again. And that was that was my first experience with Vim. And then I was like, that's dumb. Why, don't, why do people want to use a thing that they can't even quit? Like, <laughs> You saw the thing that how do I close Vim is still the most trafficked Stack Overflow question. <laughs> it still gets the most daily views. Awesome. I didn't even know what I was in. So I think that that's why right. I was no, like... Of course. <laughs> In college, whenever I was on those like terminal type things, not really terminals, but like, we had like a lab, the computer science lab had like um, these Linux machines and I would always use Xemacs because it gave me at least a GUI. And so I, I and I knew Emacs, some Emacs key bindings, but I've never been an Emacs command line user. Yeah. Knowing read line keys is, is good just in general. Yeah. I have Vim configured to do that in like when I'm in uh, whatever the command mode or whatever. Right. I think it does that by default, doesn't it? I don't think so. Oh. Anyway, so check it out. Check out new tools every once in a while. I guess that's the theory. Yeah. Draper had just written a blog post about on the ThoughtBot blog about uh, he had switched from OS ten to, to Linux and was talking about like switching your tools up can find you new modes of productivity, basically. And that's what reminded me of the conversation that we had been having around VS Code uh, in the ThoughtBot Slack as well. So it's another one of those things that like just looking at what's available out there and realizing that like, oh, it doesn't have to be <laughs> my tab completion doesn't have to be this dumb. There's hope for me. That type yeah. of thing. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, the only other consideration with Vim ver- or Emacs versus not is pairing. Because, mm-hmm. like, have, have you used Screen Hero since since it got integrated into Slack? I don't think since it got integrated in Slack I've used it, no. So it's gotten a lot worse. Really? How so? So it seems to use way more bandwidth because it's just way slower. I've noticed latencies are higher and, like, it's more likely to be at a resolution where I can't read anything now because it had to downgrade everything. Hmm. And it's just got like, like, so I can't type colon in it. Why? I don't, I have no idea why. And and I've tried this out with multiple machines, going to multiple other machines. It appears that you cannot type colon with Screen Hero (laughs) through Slack. Mm -hmm. So like Teammate then is really the only other option out there that I'm aware of right now. Yeah, Teammate works well. It does. I've done some remote pairing with that. 
Other than for whatever reason, my color scheme just looks super wonky on other people's computers, and I have no clue why. Hmm. But that's less bad. That's a problem. That's you can you can deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> than like compression artifacts making it so you can't read the code. <laughs> or, or like typing what I think I'm what I'm trying to say, and then asking my pair if they can insert some colons for me. <laughs> Which I've had to do. Insert some goldens for me, please. After yeah. character three and eight. There we go. Well, I mean, it becomes pretty obvious, at least, you know, like in Ruby where you want them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when you can't type a colon in Ruby, it, it you basically now back to dictating through like a Google Hangouts. Mm-hmm what you know code to your pair and it's just miserable i've also seen that some people here at thoughtbot were confused when it came back they were like but i can't what are they saying they couldn't share control over the machine or whatever like you could it was basically like hangout screen share but no two-way control no there is but there is but it turns out i think for whatever they were doing the answer was not if you have the app store version of slack but if you have the downloaded version of Slack, like just from slack.com or whatever. Oh, I thought it was if you were using it through the web UI, you couldn't. This, that's not the answer that was taught. I mean, I haven't had this problem because I don't use Screen Hero or the Slackified version of Screen Hero. I only use Screen Hero itself only a, a few times. What's your solution for when you're doing Teammate when you want to share a browser? Do, do you do Teammate with a Hangout? Yeah, if we need to share a browser. Like, right. for me, that's infrequent enough. Or voice. Oh, yes, right, and we need voice. So, yeah, but I mean, like, and it's all just turned on screen share when we need to do that. But for me, like, needing to share a browser window is... Less frequent. Infrequent enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Remote pairing is definitely still not not really quite there, though. I feel like, this is not an advertisement for this, but I feel like I need to mention, I don't even know the name of it, but I've seen some tweets. Are we allowed to talk about it? What? Ben's thing, I'm yeah. assuming. You're why, good? Why, yeah. why wouldn't we be allowed to talk about it? I don't know. I mean, I guess he's got a public web. Yeah, ben, yeah. so Ben Ornstein, uh, what's it called? That's what I was just looking up. Tuple. Tuple. Tuple.app. Yep. Remember, the headline is, remember when Slack stole Screen Hero from us? <laughs> so yeah, you can check it out. You can go to tuple.app and sign up for their mailing list, and they'll tell you what's going on with that. But who knows? I mean, hopefully that'll be good. Yeah. You're welcome, Ben, for this great plug we gave you. <laughs> sign up for their mailing list. Who knows? Maybe it'll be good. <laughs> Maybe it'll ship someday. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up then, I guess. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 163. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.